0: a podcast for humans. This is episode 15, and I'm joined today by the excellent co-host Jennifer Nikolaisen, which I believe is how you pronounce your last name. Is that correct?
1: That is, in fact, correct, Kenna. Thank you.
0: Excellent. And unlike most of our other co-hosts, uh, Jennifer is not a Python developer, but she is partnered with a Python developer named J- JAG. Uh, what's his proper name? Joshua
1: Ginsberg. He's a uh, architect, uh, Ansible by Red Hat.
0: Yes, he's a good friend of mine, and he's been a guest on the show. Uh, and Jen here is a, a founder of a great um, startup slash nonprofit that targets um, addiction and works with people who are dealing with addiction and is using technology to help solve different problems in that space. So I thought it would be interesting to bring her onto the show and talk about. Uh, how technology can be used to really impact humans' lives uh, in meaningful and impactful ways, and Jen definitely is someone who has a lot of thoughts about this. So, yeah, that's I'd right. So see. not
1: not quite as cool as a Python developer, but you know, barely made the cut here to be cool enough to be on your podcast. Thank you, of.
0: Oh, I think you definitely <laughs> make the cut. Don't worry.
1: Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about uh, what we got going on over here.
0: Yeah. So uh, first, tell us. Uh, Little bit about yourself. Um, you are, in addition to doing the nonprofit, what else do you do?
1: Sure. So um, to pay the bills, since that's uh, not something that one can easily do when you're getting a nonprofit off the ground, I uh, provide services to folks as a spiritual guide and helping them prepare for the transition of marriage, and then officiating weddings themselves. So I, excellent.
0: Uh, that that sounds like. Uh, a lot of fun. I I went on to a website once called um, I can't remember the name there's so many of them but it's one of those ones where you pay $25 and you become Mm -hmm. an ordained minister an an ordained minister yeah openministry.net that's it yeah
1: yeah
0: I I did it twice once to become a minister and once to become a shaman.
1: Oh okay well there you go. Minister (laughs) shaman python king kind of rights yes exactly
0: (laughs) It it was a lot of fun uh, but then, it, to actually do it, you have to go through. In Virginia, at least, there's you have to become like licensed in Virginia, so there's a whole other process.
1: That's right. Yeah. So I originally <laughs> originally got my ordination also through one of those uh, flybynight websites. <clears throat> Although I think one of the better ones is called AMM american dot uh, org, and they're actually a really cool nonprofit themselves that are all about promoting the idea that. No matter who you are, if you're a human being, you have the right to recognize love and marriage and commitment between friends. Um, so there. So it's whole... less,
0: of, less about abusing the system and more about embracing. Yeah, like embracing
1: your democratic rights to marry people. Um yeah. But your right to actually perform legal marriages, uh, especially in certain states like Virginia, West Virginia, uh, New York is a pretty particular one. Um, you have to get state registered. So as I've gotten this business off the ground, it's uh, become increasingly important to define my doctrine, if you will. Um, It's been really interesting, though, because I what I've found is I've stumbled upon this really niche market. It's actually not so niche. It's a, a very underserved market in this generation of folks who are getting married, who grew up in religious backgrounds, feel some sense of obligation around the time of their marriage that they should do something religious um but the elements of the religion that they were brought up in don't resonate with them personally or in a way that feels genuine and and actually connects them to some sense of god or, or the divine so um, my work evolved in this really cool way to help people just be intentional about their marriage and um think about what it means to them from a very practical spiritual perspective if you know what i mean and, uh, and then I use that work that we do together to kind of translate it into a ceremony flow that has the cadence of reverence and holiness. Um, while still feeling accessible and down-to-earth and using language that we can all relate to. So I truly, in the past couple of years, have developed a, a doctrine, so to speak, around these ideas, which I call intentional humanism. And oh, uh, intentional humanism is now a registered religion in the state of West Virginia, Virginia, <laughs> and uh, pending New York, hopefully sometime that's next what, year.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic. How yeah. do you become a registered religion?
1: Uh, well, okay, so I'm not actually a... I think there is is a irs tax classification for becoming a registered religion i think it's like 501 c6 or something um, so I'm, I'm not that but you just have to depending on the state you have to fill out certain paperwork submit certain documentation um and i certainly can uh, attest that i among my friends and my tribe uh, we practice these principles of intentional humanism i had several friends who are willing to you know um Attest, attest under uh what do you call it the people who notarize you know this agreement and you know it's firmly uh very clear that this is what they're practicing and um was this just a fun project for you
0: or is that something that you kind of like have to do in order to become licensed well it came out of necessity when i
1: started uh on a contract by contract basis um i started doing the work in maryland which has really easy um easy. It has uh, less stringent rules for what the background of your minister is when performing the marriage. But then as I started to build the business, I got clients in Virginia and then West Virginia. And so it was just on a case by case basis. I was like, Oh, well, I'm hired to do a wedding in Virginia. I better figure out how to, uh, how to legally officiate this (laughs) wedding. And um, so
0: it, it sounds to me like, this is kind of like when I traveled to India and I applied for my visa, they make you choose a religion that you are, and uh interesting i there is none as an option but like they're like are you christian uh muslim or x y and z buddhist and i'm i'm like i didn't know what which one to pick because i'm very kind of diverse in my belief system uh i just put christian because it was i thought it would be easiest uh and probably most typical of someone who was going over there Hmm. um but is it is that why you decided to to do that is so you could like honestly fill out that form basically
1: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly consider it, I hold it as a strong ethical responsibility to really be providing the, the legal side of marriage officiation in this process that I'm selling to my clients. So, um, so yes, I mean, I, I mean it fully and, you know, there is all of that strong intention behind it. I just don't believe that a religion necessarily has to be something quite as dogmatic as what, uh. The standard is.
0: Well Religion is an interesting word too because it it's kind of interwoven with um, you know there's spiritual beliefs in addition to um, what I usually call ritual. hmm uh, And so I I don't know what the and for state life views transitions like
1: marriage and birth and death. You you know, marriage know, is a
0: ritual There's for something sure.
1: that is very. Um, that feels really good as humans to mark those transitions with rituals, I think. And uh, ultimately when it comes down to, when it comes down to it, marriage is this transition from, okay, I have like this intense personal experience of love by going through the transition and whatever ritual you choose to mark your marriage, you're bringing it out of the personal realm and into the social realm, into the realm of your community. And, that,
0: and not yeah. Not only that, especially in the in the east, it's really about a merging of families.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think in the west, more than people give it credit for. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And so it it takes on these new dimensions of economics of you know social requirement um, outside of just your personal uh, experience of love. And so so yeah. So it's been important for me to make sure that we're meeting those legal economic requirements. Make sure you get all those benefits. Um, but when you look at the the paperwork and the the laws, they vary not just state by state, but county by county. Um, you know the process for for submitting your your marriage license and everything. There, the intent of the law is quite literally to make sure that the couple has been intentional in front of family and friends, declaring their love, making a statement of intention of of a promise to stay with each other or to commit to some other set of beliefs and values. Um, so I, I don't know. I believe very firmly that what I do, the work that we do in advance of the ceremony and putting together, a, um, you know, a series of intentional rituals, which is what I have the most fun with. You know, it, it varies by couple. <laughs> and It's all according to their personality. And it's so much fun to do. But as long as we do that, um, then I'm meeting the letter of the law, you know, and uh, I mean, I've done it for. <laughs> big weddings you know with 3 400 people in attendance i did a wedding earlier this fall that was a blend between uh, an indian family actually of a strong hindu heritage and a you know kind of just regular granola uh, white family that you know practice kind of non committal uh, i think they were anglican or something Um, And that had a lot of ritual, you know, and like all these people and a lot of uh, pomp and circumstance. And then last weekend, I held a ceremony just uh, in someone's home with five people there. But We still went through, for them, it was incredibly meaningful and incredibly intimate, vulnerable uh, setting. And still, I I still believe that, you know, in both of those situations, we set ourselves up to create an intention for what their relationship was going to be after that moment, um, and that's what the law requires in order to legally recognize a marriage. So as long as you're doing that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a Christian or an intentional humanist.
0: <laughs> it sounds to me like you, in, you're you not really performing the ceremony as much as you are being a, a, a marriage consultant in a way when they come to you. I mean, you are performing the ceremony and everything. That's a huge part of what you're doing. But you're you're helping them design what the ceremony is right
1: yeah yeah i like to say that and i'm more like, of a guide
0: yeah. than a counselor
1: or a minister
0: yeah Guiding that's really cool this
1: process mm-hmm. yeah thanks so
0: so back to the nonprofit uh <laughs> and the technology stuff um so so you have seek healing i want to also full disclosure i'm technically an advisor for this nonprofit. uh i haven't really done much advising yet but i am involved um because i really believe in it and i think that it's a great yeah, You certainly project. helped
1: us out a lot so far i uh you know, having no such technical background myself, it's, uh, it's been super valuable to have your input and Josh's input. And we're still in the early stages of putting this thing together, you know?
0: Yeah, well, I intend to, to do more. And <laughs> there is a. Uh, so, do you want to just give us uh, like a one sentence summary of what Seek Healing is?
1: Yes. So, Seek Healing is a nonprofit that is dedicated to fighting the opioid epidemic by rethinking rehab and recovery in a way that helps people heal through authentic connection experiences.
0: Yeah, and so the way I frame this when I describe it to people is that you kind of view um, the, the reason that most people resort to opioids recurringly is because they lack other meaningful um, experiences in their lives. Is that an accurate statement?
1: Yeah, I I would just add maybe the word connection into in between meaningful and experiences, um, which is what the science really shows that we our brains um, change in very measurable ways when we have meaningful experiences of connection with either ourselves in some kind of introspective, reflective way with other human beings in a social way. Uh, or with some experience of the divine, higher power, cosmos, universe, whatever you want to call it, our, our brains literally change when we have those experiences. And um, in the absence of those experiences, we develop maladaptations um, that make it hard to survive in a healthy and happy way um, and often express themselves in addictive patterns.
0: So you are working on building a collection, a library of different avenues that someone who is uh, struggling with addiction can go to, uh, explore, uh, having connections with, uh, and it can it ranges from different like types of church groups to yoga to things like open source software development. Exactly,
1: yeah, because it doesn't doesn't really matter. And the cool thing about being a human is that there are thousands of different ways that you can connect, thousands of different communities, activities, things to learn. Um, Yeah, so the idea with building a library is creating a a very actionable resource for people who maybe haven't been exposed to all the cool stuff that's out there to do, um, have grown up in environments where they feel isolated from things like that, um, and where drugs may have been the only outlet for experiencing social connection, um, in a oh, more shallow oh, way than would have. Uh,
0: been I really never really considered that our before. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way of looking at it because uh, the that's very true. Because there's there's certain circles that you get involved with where that's I know at least uh, from just an alcohol perspective, there's definitely circles where that's the thing to do. And that's what, that's how you connect with people.
1: Absolutely. I mean, my uh, own journey, I feel like I resonate with that. I, in high school, I felt way more, um, connected and, uh, I don't know. I felt more fun, more real, like with the people that I was using drugs with, I felt like I got a breath of fresh air in those circles versus the kind of, in my personal experience like the stuffy kind of school experience i was having a a family life and church background that i couldn't really relate to and it was like you know meeting these people who are um using i had a, a new layer of social connection that that really served me you know and i think what's unfortunate is that um you can end up uh the that that's really just starting to scratch the surface of what our brains need to be healthy and happy in the long term
0: yeah, I always. This is. This might sound strange, but I. I worked at McDonald's a long time ago, and um, I always. I was very sheltered at the time. I. I, you know, grew up in a Protestant household, and I always found it interesting that I really appreciated the people who had like a, a, a deep drug history that worked there, like an active drug history, that that they. Um, they seem more real than everyone else you know like they they seem more down to earth and they seem more um like like more genuine people and mm. i think that might touch to the point that you're making where you know it's possible that they're living more you know they're they're they are young so they probably weren't struggling at that point um but it's possible they're living more connected lives than the standard person mm.
1: I think what that really yeah it's a great reflection, I think, and I think what that really points to is um, how hungry we are for that type of connection, you know and I think what happens unfortunately is that as we get older um, and if we if we continue to not be able to find it in healthy ways, um, drugs neurochemically fill those gaps for us, um, the craziest the most Astounding thing to me about this opioid epidemic is uh, was learning through my, my colleague, Dr. Wersman, who's on our board of directors um, Was explaining to me how So social bonding is a part of human evolution obviously, right? That's what differentiates us from other primates We started trading we have language. We talk to each other. We bond socially So it makes perfect sense that our brains must have natural reward systems to incentivize those social interactions but what I didn't know is that the way that we incentivize those interactions neurochemically is with opioids, literally. So our brains produce endogenous morphine, endorphins. That's literally where that word comes from. But neurochemically.
0: endorphins oh, and, are endogenous by the opiate? It's an opioid, opioid structure receptors? in our body. Oh, it's I did not know that. Endogenous
1: morphine, yeah um and so we release those and it feels good you know to have a, a real down-to-earth conversation with somebody um and in the absence of those conversations so you know those high schoolers that are going out and looking for that looking for that
0: um i was under the impression it. that the opioid receptors were not used by anything naturally in the brain that is very fascinating that explains a lot hmm
1: yeah it explains <laughs> a lot especially when you look at a World where social media is totally changing the landscape of how we interact with each other. I think in ways we can't even measure yet. Um, and looking, and is back- that
0: true of all dopamines?
1: Uh, I might have to defer to Rachel on that, but I know that this uh, this is specifically the the keystone of why of our argument as to why the opioid epidemic is occurring is because we are not you know experiencing the natural release of those opioids as frequently anymore for a variety of reasons you know we can sit here and talk social politics all day long the fact is is that people in a widespread way aren't
0: i do want to touch on on how this relates to technology and i i i want to touch on two things and the first one is how this relates to open source Mm. And because I think open source is a very powerful connection-driven thing that, um, it really it's all about connections. With Absolutely, people. we've
1: talked about how we're going to put it in the library, right?
0: Definitely, yeah. Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The library for Healing would have open source as one of the activities that you can participate in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but not only that, but just just open source is kind of what this podcast is about, and it's and it's beautiful to see. Um, you know, such a, such a great ecosystem built around humans just doing great things together and trying to make the world a better place. And I think that, that, that's a testament to your argument really Mm. is, is that all this technology is being built and there's no driving factor. You know, there, there's dopamine being released or whatever, but there's, you know, we're, we're just all in this together and we're doing something good that feels good. And we're, we're, you know, and it, we're, the there's an, a there's a sense of accomplishment uh, in building these things together, um, mm. and it definitely there's definitely some kind of a reward system that's that's being driven, but at the same time it it's just like I see open source as like kind of the the world's unknown like best kept secret if you will, yeah. like it's like the world is being totally consumed by social media. And by all this technology, like Netflix and and all these major companies that are all built on open source stuff that's built by people in their spare time, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's and it's based on this connection thing you're talking about. So I think that's a really powerful idea. Super uh,
1: powerful, and you're right. It, it manifests in a beautiful way in the open source community. The more that I learn about um, about open source, the more uh, drawn to it I am, and, and impressed by it. It's very, very and, cool the depth of connections that uh, y'all foster within this community.
0: And there's definitely some toxic stuff where like companies get involved and and it becomes a bit of a business in some sometimes. But it, there, they're, I'm talking about the pure open source ethos, the core, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and I, the other thing I wanted to touch on is y- this project of yours. Do you think that it would have been possible to build this? 15 years ago without the technology that we have available today?
1: Mm, um, I do, I, I think, well, to an extent. I think that we could build the models, like right now we're doing our pilot program without the technology piece. So what what is magical about the technology piece is that it's going to allow us to scale. Um, yeah. And that's what I get really, really excited about. Um, I mean, with 91 people dying every day in this country, a, a scalable solution is absolutely what's needed. I mean, there are some places that are offering connection-based healing already, like very high-end recovery facilities that cost two to $3,000 per person. Um, per day. Per day, probably, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> um, but the the idea that we could start creating authentic connections in people's local communities, you know, in places where there's already folks running small businesses and nonprofits uh, with the intention to get people involved in that way. Um, Technology makes it possible for us to just connect all of those dots um, and bring people together in a way that, you know, not only is going to help some people uh, save their lives, you know, and heal in a really active way, but very materially make the world a more connected place, which is what I think social media set out to do. Um, but it's like, it, and I, and I hate talking about this in a dismissive way, right? Cause I think it's easy to fall into the trap of, oh, smartphones are de- destroying our generation and, you know, social media is so bad, blah, blah, blah. I don't think that's it I, at all. I think it's yeah. that we just aren't using it well and we're not using it intentionally.
0: I th- so if you were born in 1978 or 1968 instead of 1988, what would, uh, to me I see this like if you were to actually go and let's say you were called to do the same thing I, I see you running like an outreach center in your local community and it would kind of focus on this stuff and that's kind of the the scale that you would be able to reach
1: yeah but, and maybe I could th- like go to different cities and try to build it again you know but it would be uh...
0: or you could tour or something mm-hmm. and 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 make write a book or you know there there's definitely there were scalable approaches but with this with um with the internet, you're able to to attempt to build uh, using Python and other tools to to build a platform that will allow uh, you know in a, in a Facebook-esque manner, um, ideally t- hundreds, tens of thousands of people to all benefit from your model, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, that's the that's the goal. And um, should I explain a little bit how that connection platform works or what the user groups are?
0: Yeah, definitely. I think think you should explain uh, first what the, um, you know, maybe tell it from the story of I'm an addict and I'm coming to the site or how I come across it and, like, what the workflow is.
1: Okay. Sure. Uh, So um, I'm in early recovery, I just got through with detox, maybe I um, had a non-fatal overdose, was revived by Narcan, you know, taken to the emergency room. I either encounter seek healing at the bedside at the, um, uh, as I'm coming out of my overdose, we've been pinged by local emergency response teams to be available for peer support after non-fatal overdoses. Uh, Other ways that we might, that they We might meet me, (laughs) mixing my pronouns here. Other ways that we are uh, creating those touch points are at local syringe and needle exchanges, um, as well as at halfway houses and talking to people who are coming out of um, insurance-funded IOP programs, intensive outpatient programs. Um, Anyway, after making contact with a seek healing person, if, uh, if I wanted to, I could sign up to go to what we call a gathering and uh, these gatherings are dinners or just unstructured social events um, where a group of seekers like me someone who's actively struggling with a mental health issue or a active addiction issue after a detox um, come to meet a another group of what we call listeners and these are people who have been to a seek healing training um, to understand how to actively diminish stigma and offer uh, peer-based support in a way that is um, just deeply empathic rather than counseling. Um, it's uh, In its essence, it's peer-based therapy, but it, it takes it a, a step further than that in really creating um, relationships that are authentic and meaningful uh, where people are seeing eye to eye and not judging each other for their experience. And at these gatherings, the uh, Neither the seekers nor the listeners know who is who. So you just show up in this place as a human um, who came to connect and to experience friendship and authentic connection. And at the end of the gathering, after um, dinner and some activities where we're uh, encouraging people to open up and become vulnerable about their experience, um, we reveal who's been trained as a listener and who hasn't. Um, because if you're coming in active recovery, of course, you're coming because you do want help, right? And you, you need some support in this journey that you're on and uh, we give you the opportunity to um, let us know if there's someone in particular you were drawn to but then administratively behind the scenes make the matches uh, between listeners and seekers who are at that gathering together and this kicks off a uh, six-month relationship or longer um, should the the pairs choose to continue Um, but six months of collecting data on how the interactions between a listener and seeker serve the seeker in their journey towards establishing a healthier, happier lifestyle. Um, so that relationship looks like one mandatory uh, face-to-face check-in every week. With um, a On the listener side, we've asked them to commit to one to two hours of additional time for texting, phone calls, uh, that sort of thing. And, um, and then, of course, measuring, uh, doing a, a data collection and selfie video check-in once a week.
0: Excellent. And is this something that you have implemented? Or is this something that is uh, like planned and uh, we going We are to in the
1: process of implementing it right now for the first time here in Asheville, North Carolina. Um, so our listeners' training is happening in early March, and uh, we're getting all the balls rolling for all of this right now as, uh, as far as getting the forms set up and um, doing like all the grassroots, out- grassroots outreach. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited. Is, is it-
0: It sounds like these events require a a lot of orchestration.
1: Yeah, yeah, fair amount of orchestration and planning and all difficult on the backs of volunteer manpower and all that. Um, And then the other part of the program, which I didn't mention, is uh, this third user group. So, so far we talked about two, seekers and listeners. Um, And the third user group are what we call connection agents, and these are the folks who are small business owners, local nonprofit leaders who run churches, who run yoga studios, who run pick up basketball leagues, uh, improv comedy clubs, meditation groups, um, and through working with our listener, this is the part that's gonna be hard to pilot actually without technology, um, but we're gonna do our best. The idea is that through this relationship that you're building with your listener, the listener could guide you through our library that we were talking about earlier, our, our online database that showcases all of these different communities and ways to connect in their local area. Um, And then we've part of the background work we're doing right now for the pilot is also networking with um, with those people and getting them to commit to uh, offering our seekers discounted or free introductory services at their uh, clinic, at their um, meetup, at their uh, workshop, whatever it is, and uh, which ultimately, you know, could scale into a potential revenue stream for us is what I'm hoping with uh, tracking those um, conversions into you know, long-term clients for those people might create a uh, rel- reliable way for us to generate a little bit of revenue to sustain the model, but um, connecting. All
0: about sustainability.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly.
0: And so you actually brought up a point that I wanted to touch on, because um, I've struggled with mental health issues over the years, uh, and we like to talk about mental health on the show a lot. Um, awesome. I think that's so good. So important. You, you were talking about I'm, I'm curious just to know what your opinion is, because it's kind of been conflated for me in my interactions with the hospital. Do you view addiction as a mental health issue?
1: Mm. Uh, yes, I absolutely okay. do. Um, I think maybe it, that deserves it, more explanation of what my view of the word mental health means. But yes.
0: Yeah, it seems like that's the best practice way to view it. And that's kind of the modern, like, that's the way the hospital views it. And that's the way the psychiatrists view it. Um, and that, but it seems to me that that's not the popular, um, culture Hmm. way of viewing it, if that makes
1: sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. I think it depends on the person and where you were raised. (laughs) If I've learned anything in the last year of establishing this thing and uh, fundraising and stuff, it's that everyone has a deeply personal (laughs) relationship with and reaction to the word addiction. Um, but as far as I can tell, Oh my gosh, people, it's such a hot button word. Um, and you, usually when I am initiating conversations with people, it's, that's what I have to figure out first, you know, is like, how do you orient to this concept? Because in the end, it's something that literally every single human being deals with. I don't care if you have a, a full blown addiction, you know, maybe you've never, uh, you know, had some of the struggles that, um, you know, the, the self-destructive behavior patterns that a lot of people deal with. But compulsion is just a, a shade of addiction, you know, at the other end of the spectrum. And anxiety is part of it. it all of this stuff exists on a spectrum. It's not a, a black and white thing um, that psychiatry has long made it out to be. And the, the academic field is starting to react to this idea, right? In the latest edition of the DSM and, and the new research that's coming out is really encouraging psychologists and um, support clinicians of all types to be viewing mental health as, as spectrum disorders. And then we can't, um, you know, we can't be looking at it in such a black and white way.
0: uh, I'm a big fan of the DSM-5. It takes a lot of things and turns it on its head.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 But addiction is a weird one. You know, I think there's these, um, two main social narratives in our world about addiction you're, you're either raised to believe that addiction is a moral failing i think this is kind of what you were hinting at a second ago it's a, a moral failing it's a, a weakness of character it's a result of you know too much hedonistic partying blah 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 you're you're a bad person basically if you're an addict um yo hey uh, you're a bad person if you're an addict. Um, And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have this idea that addiction is a disease and um, something that you can't escape, that you'll never fully recover from. Um, In many many cases, the the view, you know, is that it's a completely genetic malaise that uh, you'll basically, once you're labeled with it, you're never gonna get away from that label. Um, And then kind of also Mm -hmm. in the realm of that view is the idea that Certain chemicals put chemical hooks in your body that are so strong, there's no way that you can possibly resist. Uh, this is a common view with um, opioids and heroin, specifically. You know, you touch heroin one time, you're instantly addicted. You're, you know, there goes your whole life. Which, you know, there's the what's difficult is there's some degree of truth in all of these views, but the reality is somewhere, somewhere in between. <laughs> I mean, the fact is, people get described prescribed, excuse me, diamorphine in the hospital all the time for serious pain, cancer patients especially. Diamorphine is the medical name for heroin. It is molecular, ident- molecularly identical to heroin. And only a portion of those who are prescribed diamorphine in the hospital actually get addicted. So addiction is not about chemical hooks. Um, it's not about uh, being a disease that you can never recover from, it, and it's certainly not a moral failing. It's much more accurate. I think what you're
0: trying to say is that it's you're never hopeless, right?
1: You're never hopeless, and and I think the, 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 what's wrong with these two narratives is that they create a sense of stigma that actually makes the root of the issue worse because stigma isolates people, right? It makes them feel disconnected, and at the heart of the problem, addiction is a maladaptation to an unhealthy social environment. The,
0: yeah. um, and sometimes genetics might be into coming to play too, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's there's definitely solid research behind that. It's just only a, a piece of it. Um, you know that, yeah. that someone's genetics may predispose them to having a stronger reaction to those kinds of social maladaptations. But at the root of it, it's uh, it's social isolation. I mean, we saw it for the first mm-hmm. time when soldiers came back from the Vietnam War back in the mm-hmm. I was in the 60s or 70s, um, and it was something crazy like. I forget the exact statistics, so I don't want to quote them right now, but it was like eighty percent of soldiers who were deployed no, that's not right. a large percentage of soldiers who were deployed during the Vietnam War became addicted to opium or heroin during their deployment. Um, oh,
0: yeah, cause it's so easy to get over there mm-hmm.
1: and if you think about it, you know, wartime conditions pretty shitty, like <laughs> you know things suck, it's not fun. Um, but what's fascinating is that ninety percent of those who were diet like through their, uh, you know, the military medical units defined as addicted to heroin and taken back home, 90% of those people um, went through withdrawal and uh, recovery completely on their own without any kind of uh, treatment support once they returned home to family and friends in a loving environment.
0: That's wonderful. So a question that I have for you is, I know you're focusing on opioids right now, is do you have plans? I mean, t- to me, they're, they're, it's obvious because there's so many people dying per day. Uh, I know there was a case, I met someone from Williamsburg, Pennsylvania, I think it was, and she told me that there was a case where that 90 people died in a single day because someone put, um, I can't remember the name of the chemical, but they put something else Fentanyl. in the heroin. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl, yeah, that's it. Uh and you know, so and in my city, yeah, there's a there's an epidemic of heroin, and the, I I th- we have the more of the order of like 30 deaths per three months, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, and it, but we live in a tiny town; it's like 30,000 people. Mm. So, um, and they're looking at changing the legislation so that um, if you deal and you're, and then someone dies and you get a manslaughter charge you know Mm -hmm. because they're they're really doing what they can to try to dissuade people from participating in the system Mm. um which is you know there's there's both sides to that coin of course um i guess what i'm saying is, is it's obvious that that is like the number one thing to target right now do you have plans on spreading out to other addiction um crises as well once you kind of Get established, or is opioids kind of like your thing
1: No, absolutely my vision my dream is for this idea and this methodology of uh, destigmatizing addiction and and helping people who struggle with addiction specifically through the modality that we all struggle with mental health issues we all have to pay attention to our mental health just like we have to pay attention to our physical health that idea my dream is to spread that idea to everyone so that everyone can benefit um, and deal with what, whatever mental health issues they're um, dealing with. I mean, the idea of using authentic connection as medicine serves people who are struggling with addiction as much as it serves people who are struggling with um, with all other types of uh, mental health issues, depression, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, you know. Um, and to, to, you know, my other point, even if you don't struggle with those kinds of... Um, openly, uh, dangerous or, or, uh, more, uh, potentially harmful or socially acceptable labels. You're still, you know, there are days where you get sad, where you get panicky and stressed out because work is hard. And, um, you know, maybe your compulsions manifest in a different way with uh, the way that you eat, for example, or the way that you, you know, manage other aspects of your life. Um, anyway, I'm kind of getting off track, but these are, uh, these are the, I, I care about helping us become a happier, healthier, more connected world. And I think this is where it starts. Um, the opioid epidemic creates a media wave right now that I'm hoping is gonna be easier, easy for us to ride um, and to kind of take advantage of that momentum to turn people's attention to this. Um, I think it's really, it's awful and tragic that it takes a crisis of this magnitude to draw our attention to this problem. But if we fail to see that this is the problem, then, you know...
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: Fuck. <laughs> Am I <laughs> allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely are.
0: So I have a random question for you. I'm, I'm just curious to know if you agree with me on this. And I'm, I don't have any place to have an opinion because I don't have any experience with this. But I, I, my friend is in AA, and I went with him to a meeting to support him. And uh, I ended up leaving because it was a closed meeting, it turned out. But I was there for, like, 15 minutes. And uh, it was a really interesting experience to me. I've, I've seen the AA books before, and I find them fascinating because they're really less about alcohol. And they're more about, like, here's a general best practices book on how to live life. Mm. And so I, I was really interested in seeing what they had to say at the meeting. And um, it, it's, it's like a scripture type of a thing, the AA books. And... Um, But I I found it so off-putting how everyone, when they introduce themselves, says, hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And I found that to be very disempowering to the individual um, because some of them were sober for 10 years or something, you know, and I I feel like maybe that that (laughs) is that your parrot?
1: My dog. Actually, I'm not
0: sure um, what's going on. Sorry. <laughs> and I again, I can't speak to this because I don't know much about that system or how it works. And I've talked to some people who are who've gone through AA, and they definitely agree that that's a statement that they should make. But mm. I'm I'm curious to know if, if you have any thoughts on that because you have so many thoughts on addiction. If that's does does that seem weird to you?
1: It does. Um, I I have a lot of thoughts on this topic, so I'll start maybe at the beginning, which is that I think the. So NA meetings, AA meetings, the 12-step model is the backbone of the traditional rehab and recovery model in this country. 90% of rehab clinics in the U.S. follow some kind of 12-step methodology. I'm not making up that statistic. It's from a book called Inside Rehab. It's an excellent resource for these kinds of questions. Um, So if 90% of the places out there that you can go to receive treatment are following this methodology and the relapse rate for heroin use is higher than 80 percent within the first month according to some studies um something's wrong (laughs) it's
0: possible that that methodology is not effective it's not
1: effective um and in my opinion for many of the reasons that you're outlining however i think it's important to step back and acknowledge that 20% 20% At is of it. a
0: good success rate. Yeah, it's sure. You know, it, it definitely
1: works for some people. Um, and, I, and I strongly believe that's because the big book and the core methodology, the steps themselves are exactly what you say. They're a, a manual for how to live a meaningful life. Um, and the model itself is really founded on the idea of connection to begin with. It's, um, you know, connecting an addict to a sponsor in a meaningful relationship where they can then interact with other addict sponsor relationships within the Sobriety community, if you will, within the twelve-step yeah. community. What, yeah. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> what I think is unfortunately uh, ineffective. What I think is, you know, the, the problem with this. I'm trying to use my words carefully, but what I think doesn't work about this is that what you have then is an addict sponsor community that is functionally. And you know inherently in the way it's set up separate from the rest of society and you identify is
0: is it codependent
1: um i think well yeah i guess that's one way of of looking it can certainly become codependent um but i think what's more dangerous about it or more toxic about it is that it can um create this sense of isolation from the rest of society and uh because of the way that the methodology is, is preached in many cases is if you don't work the steps hard enough, then you're going to relapse. It creates a basis for shame that for some people, for many people, you know, 80 to 20% success rate for that 80%, that cycle of shame and of never being able to do good enough to achieve 100% sobriety. Um, you know leads them into this this kind of endless cycle of relapse where you're you're clean for a little while you're feeling good you're on top of your life you know you got this um but then one little uh you know blemish and you're right one drink (laughs) one whatever it is uh is kind of like well that marks my my 100% sobriety record. Now I have to go back starting counting again from day 1. I have to go back to meetings and say I've only been sober for a day rather than 10 yeah, years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's uh, it's yeah. just the way
1: that the identity is formed in those communities and um again they they really really work for some people, but I think there's a need for a fresh uh, perspective in the industry. And there's some rehab centers out there that are starting to identify this. There's one in particular in California that I'm really drawn to called uh, the Promises Center that um, offers a two track recovery program, one where you begin your recovery. At the beginning of the recovery process, you identify yourself, you work with a therapist to identify yourself as either a moderator or an abstainer. Um, again, getting to the point that for some yeah, people, Yeah, I was just going to make is... that point.
0: Abstinence for me does not seem to be, in general, I've because I've, I've done extreme dieting and, and stuff like that in the past. And if I abstain completely from anything, it really seems to have a lot of power over me. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. It creates this relationship of like competition and, uh,
0: yeah. And then when I, if I ever do partake in it, 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 whatever effect it has on me, like I was convinced once that I was gluten intolerant, Mm. uh, not gluten intolerant, but like I, it would make me tired. I, I stopped eating gluten and to see, to see what it would do. And then whenever I did eat it, it would make me really tired. And so now I can eat, Gluten, whenever I want, it doesn't have any effect on me. And that's mm, the type of thing mm, mm-hmm. where that I'm talking about. Where it's like, you know, if by totally removing something, and same with caffeine. Like, like if I is to, to to remove caffeine from my diet entirely. Um, if I have like a cup of tea, I'll get crazy, you know, Like, mm-hmm. and that's not healthy for me. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it's so important to recognize that every single human being's body and brain chemistry is unique and different and everybody's going to have a different experience. And there has to be room in the recovery process to honor that and really to empower people to write their own rules for recovery. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of what we're all about with the seek healing model.
0: That's good. I I'm, I'm really thankful that this exists and I'm glad that you're using technology to allow people to um, find this no matter where they're located. I think that's important um, as I, I just know, cause I fell into a system when I had my first manic episode and I, I, you know, I went from the hospital to like the recommended place where they wanted me to go. And luckily I have good insurance and I was able to go like find my own psychiatrist and like pave my own way forward. But if I, if I was stuck in the system they put me in, I, I, mm. it was ter- it was not my, not for me, mm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, and there are people who live their whole lives and they're stuck in the system that they're put in, and I think that you're making available a system that might be able to empower a lot of people who don't have any other option. So I think that's really important.
1: Yes. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I I think the power of uh, beginning this mission and this project from a nonprofit perspective is really going to help us um, kind of keep that that objective at the forefront of our minds. It's really important to me that we are always pushing that specific envelope, you know, of making this an equal opportunity practice, um, making this option available to everyone, because right now it's really the people at the bottom with no insurance, um, who are getting screwed in this situation and, and not just, you know, financially, which is a a huge part of it. And then getting caught in these economic cycles that are never ending. Um, but also, uh, from a, a mental health perspective, you know, and constantly being beaten down and, um, you know, feeling like there's no place for you in the world. And like, uh, And beyond that, that you're also an addict and you're always going to be an addict and you're never going to be better than that. Um, I mean, there's there's nothing that breaks my heart more. And uh, I can't wait to to start rallying together as a as a nation to rescue ourselves from that pit of shame and despair that is not necessary.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, um, I experimented with different substances when I was on a spiritual journey many years ago. And when I had my manic episode, the hospital asked me what substances I had taken, so I told them. Uh, and these are things I tried, like, once or twice. And um, so now I'm labeled, whenever I go to the hospital, as poly substance abuse, mm. <laughs> uh, and I have to pee in a cup every time I go, and they charge me, like, 300 bucks, and they won't treat me until they see that I'm clean, basically. And I'm like, I am... Not, they think that I'm a, a drug addict, mm. and... And they, and I'm in that category and it's unfortunate because I am definitely not. And I wasn't at the time either. And, uh, but so I, I've gotten a glimpse of what it's like to be one of those people, mm, I guess.
1: The stigma that comes with it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's unfortunate because the, the medical community, they, they treat, they treat it very respectfully, but, but it's, it's kind of like, you know, you, you, you gone fucked up here, you know, that mm-hmm. type of thing.
1: Exactly. Uh, exactly.
0: Yeah. And get I'm it like, together
1: shape up or get out you know it's
0: a yeah it shows like
1: intervention and um yeah we, we we preach it in our society
0: yeah and and man i, I just want to speak for a second uh, the the system they put me in they had me go to the, the community health center or whatever it's called here in winchester and it's i'm really glad that it's available for people and there were definitely some people there who really thrive in that environment. This one woman in particular loved it. Uh, but it, it was all like, I, I was, you, you go in and you get categorized at what level of treatment you need, you know, like to see a doctor, you, you go in for like three times a week or you're there full time, you know, that type of thing. And so I was in the second category and uh, I went in and it was just group therapy basically and i hate group therapy like it's my least favorite thing in the world <laughs> it doesn't work for me mm. it's a mm-hmm. it's a waste of time because i don't want to you know i enjoy hearing what other people have to say but usually you know for 5 hours no thank you you know like mm. it's and i and i don't want to burden anyone else with what i have to say because i just want to talk to the doctor about the things and then they would and then there was no doctor to talk to it was just a, an rn mm. uh or it was a uh, a nurse practitioner, so she could write prescriptions, uh, and uh, it was just terrible. Like it, and if if I didn't have the insurance that I have, and I uh, and like the right people to talk to to find out which doctor to go to, like I could totally, and like I didn't have my family to support me during that time, uh, to help me like get get through all this stuff because I wasn't really right in the head. Like I could totally see myself being homeless, mm. is what I'm saying. Mm. You know what I mean? It's a powerful
1: acknowledgement, kind of.
0: Yeah, like cuz I'm fine now but mm-hmm. like at the time like it took it took proper steps to get to that point. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm it's I I don't know what I'm trying to say. Just the existing systems are doing the best that they can mm. and it, and they're trying to solve an impossible problem and I think any new approach is welcome and I I'm really thankful that you're taking a new approach um, and I think that I wish I wish you and I guess us because I'm helping out mm-hmm. uh, the best of luck because I think that I think that new approaches are needed very badly and everyone and there's so much energy being put into um, company flipping and making the best hot app for people and you know that's great but like all this, I, I feel like technology should be harnessed to better people's lives. And it often is, you know, if someone makes a great note-taking app, that can enhance many people's lives. But, uh, you know, you can truly impact someone's life by working on something like this. Mm. So uh, I guess this is a call to action to anyone who's listening. To uh, I know you're always accepting donations, and you're always looking for help, right?
1: Yeah, please. I, we, uh, and thank you so much for your words, Kenneth. I um. I really appreciate that. And yeah, anyone out there who's listening, um, I encourage you to check out our website. There's lots more information on there. Kenneth and uh, others have helped uh, to actually build the website, which I'm also grateful for. Um, but there's a Donate Now uh, button front and center. You can uh, make a tax-deductible donation to our cause and what we're working on. Um, and I was also going to take the opportunity to say that we're uh, this platform that we've been talking about. Um, we've been tossing around the idea you know we're we're going out for web development quotes right now but we would also love to see how much of what we could code on volunteer manpower um and i know that you know you and josh have talked about potentially hosting hackathons and um you know getting folks out there helping us code parts of the library so if that's something you're interested in please uh, reach out and contact us shoot us an email that'd be awesome
0: Yeah, and uh, what are the best places to reach out to, and what's the name of the website? Uh, The
1: website is seekhealing.org, S-E-E-K-H-E-A-L-I-N-G.org, and you can send us an email at info at seekhealing.org.
0: Excellent, and uh, I'm sure there's a Twitter handle as well.
1: There is. It's at seek underscore healing. We didn't get at seekhealing. It's uh, some... uh, very wonderful massage therapist somewhere out on the West coast who uh, is unwilling to give up her Twitter <laughs> handle. But if you get underscore seek underscore healing we're on Twitter, we're also on Instagram at seek healing and uh, our Facebook page, Facebook slash seek healing.
0: Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and, uh, and thanks to all of our listeners. Uh, um, announcements I want to make, I'm going to be speaking at Pi Tennessee th- in February. So if you're going to be there, I look forward to meeting and seeing all of you. Um, I'm also going to be speaking I can't, I guess I can't say that one yet because it's not announced, so, but I'll be in Colorado soon, I'll just say that, that's my mysterious announcement, so, uh, anyway, uh, thank you all for joining, and we'll see you soon, bye.